morning, Branches Church. It is a joy to be with you all today. Yeah, I just got back from Common Ground Surf Camp this past weekend, and there were 43 students there, and 11 gave their lives to Jesus. Just so sweet. It was such a joy to be with them, to get to know all the kids on a deeper level. Left it so filled. Camping is something that I've been doing for a long time ever since I was younger. I think it really started when I went to Seaside Church's Supai Camp. This is a camp down in the Grand Canyon. You hike in 12 miles. You bring all your stuff with you. And this was summer 2008 when I did it for the first time, moving from eighth grade to freshman year. And uh, it was an awkward time in my life because I was in eighth grade. I was an awkward little scrawny boy going on this very long hike with a 50-pound bag, which ended up actually being 60 pounds. You see, there was a tradition with this church where the youth leaders would put very heavy rocks in the students' bags that the students didn't know. This didn't happen to me. What I found in my bag was a 10-pound can of nacho cheese. You might be wondering, they make 10-pound cans of nacho cheese? I think it literally said, like, wow, 10 pounds. And that's what I felt when I eventually saw it. But so we, we hiked down uh, to mile 6.5. You don't do the full 12 miles all up front. We hiked to mile 6.5, set up our tent, and I'm in the tent. I open up my bag, and I'm, there it is. Voila. It's 10 pounds of nacho cheese. And I'm like, what on earth? And I, I don't even think it was a moment later that my mentor pokes his head into the tent and goes, oh, nacho cheese. I got chips. Let's, let's make some nachos happen. And I'm like, oh, what a coincidence. That's like the perfect thing for nacho cheese. And you see, I was a little oblivious and I didn't have trust issues yet. That, that developed after this trip. I still had a little bit of purity. But finally, we get to uh, mile 12. We set up uh, camp. We're going to be there for a full week. And I finally take off my bag and the relief that I felt to not have to put it back on for a week. I just put on my small camel back that just had my water. And the rest of the week felt like a breeze. The comparison from how heavy it was to the lightness I felt was night and day. And so it is with our experience with Jesus. When we cast off the weight of our sin, when we cast off the weight of this culture's expectations on us, we experience lightness. We experience life. And with us alone, we just have the living water, all that we need. And from there on, we just hike through life. Or in the words of Hebrews chapter 12, we run the race that has been set before us, not picking up anything along the way that'll weigh us down, but holding on to Jesus alone. We are to persevere in the faith as we saw many people did in Hebrews chapter 11 last week. It was talking about the heroes of the faith who were commended for having their faith despite the difficulty, despite never seeing the promised salvation come into fruition in their lifetime. And so it begs the question, how much more should we persevere having received such a great mercy? And you see, the author of Hebrews didn't write chapter 11 as a historical purpose. This wasn't like the TLDR, too long, didn't read, like you didn't read the Old Testament, we'll just give you like this preview in chapter 11. Rather, it was to motivate the readers toward active faith, for faith is naturally 
active. It cannot be passive. It must move us. It must shape us. For without motion, it's simply shallow belief. It's not faith at all. And with our text today, we will discover how to persevere in this race that has been set before us, holding on to the faith. And how? Let's go to God's word. It's going to be out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. You could open your Bibles there. Hebrews is of the final books of the Bible. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and Usher will bring one to you. And I'm going to be real. I, I'm just going to be honest. I never know how much time I should leave. I think uh, in a few moments, I'm going to start reading. You never want to read it too quick. You start, start reading. They're like, I'm still flipping to the page, Austin. I feel good about it now. You guys feel good? Hebrews chapter 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that being everyone who was talked about in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. Moreover, we have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Our parents disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Will you pray with me, church? So Jesus, may we begin to understand in a deeper, greater sense what it looks like to have faith in you, to run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on you. We thank you that you're with us this morning and that your word is alive and active. May it speak to us in your name. Amen. So our text today touches on some spiritual athleticism. It is running the race. And how is this race run? We need to throw off everything that hinders, the sin that entangles. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus as we consider him who endured, that we may not lose heart. Let's first consider 
everything that hinders. And this could very well be sin, for we see later on in the text, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So truly, living in the sin that we've already been freed from will be something that hinders us in the faith. But I don't think this is limited to just sin, as he says, everything that hinders. I think good things could be the very things that hinder us in the faith. Even if they're not necessarily sin, they could be a distraction from the source of life and in turn lead one astray. And you might think, Austin, that sounds awfully legalistic. What are you saying? Well, you might not just need to be weary of sin, but of good things as well. For it's been said, attention is the beginning of devotion. What we give our attention to the most will be what we're most devoted to. And so, yes, if there is a good thing that is hindering us in our faith, we need to be mindful of it and throw it off. Not because it's sin, but if it's keeping us from God, it may prove to be just as unhelpful as sin. And what I'm not saying is if you have good things in your life that are distracting you, that you need to cut them out because many of these things are necessary. You need your job. Hobbies are good for you. You need things that work toward physical, emotional, and mental health, things that are good. But what I am saying is we do need to redirect these things from distraction to devotion, directing them to God rather than having them and God be in separate categories in our lives. God is to be through all things both because he is king, as well as when he's on the throne of our hearts, all things work for his glory and in turn for our good. So we can't just give God our Sundays when every day is to be the son's day. Every day is to be for Jesus. Meaning we cannot compartmentalize our faith to days and times for all of our days and every moment of them is to be the Lord's. Not in the sense that we need to be like hermits and just be in our room reading our Bibles all day and never seeing the light of day, but in a sense where everything we do ought to be for the glory of God so that we will never be hindered in this race of faith. We must redirect the good things in our lives from distraction to devotion, devoting them to God rather than having them be the very things that distract us from God. And on top of that, We must throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And I like that imagery that it brings as we're in this race of faith. It entangles. It trips us up. Now, I can't imagine something I'd rather not do than run a hurdle race. First, you're running. Second, there's obstacles in your way as you're running doesn't really make sense in my mind why one would want to do that. Likelihood of tripping seems very high to me. And it's not just me. Even the best of the best may fall at times. In 2015, there was a steeplechase race at the Diamond League meeting in France. And the American runner, Evan Yeager, suffered the worst collapse of his career. He tripped over the final hurdle just 50 meters before the finish line. But before that, he was blowing the competition out of the water. He was on track to set a personal record, the American record. He was going with all of his might, but tripped over the final hurdle and was passed. He said in an interview afterward, I don't know if I was too fast or too tired. I get gave it everything I had to get over the barrier, but my toe just barely clipped it. I couldn't stop myself from falling. 
Now, I'm not pointing any fi fingers. I wouldn't do any better. And obviously, someone who does hurdle races professionally, they're built differently. They're a different kind of human. Even my student, Ian Dean, who does hurdle races, he's a machine. Not, not every person can do this. However, in a similar sense, when we choose to hold on to the sin that Jesus has freed us from, it could easily entangle us, trip us up. It's like we're placing hurdles on the track of our faith in which we are running the race. And eventually, though we may see sin as a private issue, the downfall could produce a public result. We may trip on this sin and the results be detrimental. We may be going about life too fast or too tired, as this runner said, and clip on the hurdle, meaning we may come to the end of ourselves with this sin or find ourselves at a loss. So we must throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Continuing on, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And this word pioneer, it's also translated as champion, the champion of our faith. Jesus held it perfectly. He's the perfecter of our faith as he solidifies it, continues the growth in us as we look to him. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus because he ran the race perfectly. And we will typically look to the example of those who show excellence in the things that we want to grow in. And there's no better person to look to than Jesus in regards to the faith, fixing our eyes on him. In a similar way, perhaps you want to grow in skill and a hobby. Let's say pickleball, for example, because somehow it's reached every generation. I have like 11-year-old middle schoolers playing it, and then my 85-year-old grandpa is just destroying fools on the court. He is so good. Everyone loves pickleball. Now, if you want to grow in your skill in pickleball, you're not just going to play with people that you're better than. It'll be good for your ego. Perhaps you'll grow a little bit over time, but it won't be the most efficient. What would be the most efficient is playing with those who are far more skilled than you. It'll serve as a pickleball masterclass in a sense. And so it is with Jesus. We fix our eyes on him because he is the master of faith, the champion of faith, the perfecter of faith. And we fall on his example. Rather than in our own abilities or the abilities of those around us, we go to the gospel accounts and we learn from him, the master the champion. Next, looking to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What was the joy that was set before him? How could he go to this gruesome death with joy? What could it have been in? It was in us. We were the joy. Us, his kids, being able to receive salvation from him. Us having the opportunity to be brought into the family of God. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The end goal carried Jesus through the difficulty. Similar to an experience you may have had that had proven difficult, maybe childbirth, cramming for SATs, or working overtime for vacation money. See, with these situations, the process, it's not a breeze, but with the end in mind, one is able to push through for the joy that is set before them. Like the pains of childbirth, they're literally a result of the fall, but the joy of the baby coming into the world makes it all worth it. 
or the, the pains of cramming for SATs, the long sleepless nights, the multiple cups of Keurig coffee because you don't have time to make a Chemex coffee that's going to be bitter. I'm talking about the coffee. It's going to be bitter because it's Keurig coffee, but also from the cramming for the SATs. But when you get the proper score for the school you want to get into, it's going to be good. Or working overtime. It could be soul crushing to a degree. But when you finally get to that vacation, when you're on the beach or you're in a cabin in the mountains, it'll all be worth it. And you see all these examples, they so, so, so fall short of the joy that Jesus experienced with the joy that led him to the cross, this joy for all of us to be brought in. So much so that the author notes, he scorned the shame, meaning he had a rejection of regard for his own reputation because being hung on a cross, this was incredibly shameful in the ancient world, but it did not matter to him. It did not matter to him for the joy set before him, us being brought in. And with that, we are to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We are to draw from the example of Jesus, considering him who endured and he who has the capacity, I'm sorry, who gives us the ability to have the capacity to endure. Through Jesus, we are given the capacity to endure hardship. As we see in the text, and as we have all experienced to some degree, we will go through hardship, and that we must endure hardship as discipline. Us going through hardship and us being disciplined, it's a sign of us being God's children. God disciplines his kids, disciplines those he loves. It is a sign that we are his It's a father who knows us, who loves us, and leads us through things for our ultimate good. The author touches on how if a child is not disciplined, then they're not legitimate children, not true sons or daughters at all. What does this mean? Well, education in the ancient world was limited to just legitimate children. It was not given to children who were illegitimate. And so illegitimate sons did not receive an inheritance, whereas the firstborn son would be the one who would receive the family inheritance. All that to say, since we are disciplined by God, we are legitimate children, and we will receive the inheritance from God through Jesus. Salvation. Us being disciplined by God is a sign that we are in the family of God, that which has been extended to us through the firstborn, Jesus. He shares that inheritance with us. We then see in the text, the author touches on the idea of respecting earthly fathers who have disciplined us and how much more we should submit to God, the father of spirits, and live. We see this contrast between the earthly father and the heavenly father. You submit to the earthly father out of respect, but we submit to the heavenly father and live. Life comes from submitting to God in order that we may share in his holiness, meaning true life begins at obedience. Life is born from submitting to God. Obedience to God is the path to life, as well as the path to sharing in that which God sets apart. Wholeness in holiness. We finally find the wholeness that we are looking for in holiness, in obedience unto God. 
Let's see how James talks about persevering through hardship to further paint the picture of finding life. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? But because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we endure the hardship as discipline, not with clenched teeth because hardship is inevitable because we have no say in whether or not it happens, but we endure it for the product it may produce. Now, a really cool part of my job is discipleship. I love preaching. I love working on sermons, but discipleship is my favorite part of my job. If you were to look at my schedule, you would see throughout each week countless names of youth and young adult guys that I meet up with for one-on-ones, and I get to encourage them toward enjoying the presence of God on a daily basis. And something really cool that comes from that is I learn a ton. I learned so much about the love of God from the younger generations. I get to learn how to be all the more devoted to Jesus and see the beauty in relationship with God. And this past Thursday was no exception. I met up with one of my young adults who's also one of my youth leaders, Joe Mauser. We went to uh, Vacancy Coffee and he said this to me, I don't want how my life goes to be based on circumstances, but my belief in God. That's a really cool thing to hear from a 21-year-old. But here's the thing. If his life had been just a breeze, it would have just been a nice thing for him to say. But Joe has undergone difficulty, recently has gone through difficulty. He's on the baseball team at his school, and if I got the story right, he was sliding to base, and when he did, he had a cut on his elbow that got an infection, and he ended up getting sepsis. He needed to be in the hospital for a full week, and he had a three to four month recovery. It was hard for him. See, I call Joe J-Rock because he embodies Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And you see, during this time, he went from going to the gym six days a week, which gives him the title of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, to hardly being able to walk. He had a very difficult recovery, and Joe got the choice. Do I go to God or do I go elsewhere? Do I blame God for what happened or do I see what God can do through this situation? And Joe chose to look to God and the hardship and his faith grew as a result. There was a harvest of peace that goes beyond circumstances. Joe chose to have his life be based not on his circumstances, but his belief in God. So brothers and sisters, we must consider hardship as joy, which sounds crazy, but we look to Jesus as our example for who the joy set before him. He endured the cross, not because it was easy, but because of the product on the other side of the hardship. What is the final product? What was the final product for Joe? Well, the testing of faith produces perseverance. And when perseverance finishes work, we are mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, the author of Hebrews takes a moment to level the playing field for the most disciplined to the least disciplined. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Thank you. I agree. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we endure for what it produces, a harvest of righteousness and of peace. 
Something I like to ask those that I meet up with for discipleship is, where do you want to be in your faith 20 years from now? And I ask it so far out because the short term tend to be pretty shallow answers. If I say short term, they'll be like, I want to read my Bible more or pray more which is really great. But when you ask long-term, it gives grander vision. Where do you want to be 20 years from now? And I hear answers like, I want to be wise in the faith. I want to be a mentor to the next generation. I want to look a lot more like Jesus when I'm older. I want to embody the presence of God. The long-term goal sounds a whole lot like a harvest of righteousness and peace. It's an abundance. It's a crop that has been brought to the table so a feast may be prepared for all to enjoy, all because someone chose to endure, all because someone chose to be obedient to God despite circumstances, leaning into Jesus throughout the hardships, running the race. So let me ask you this today. Where do you want to be in your faith five years from now? Where do you want to be in your faith five years from now? No one desires to be stagnant, if we really think about it. No one desires to be in the same place. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're craving the living water, not this world's stagnant pond. Where do you want to be in five years? What do we need to do? Verse 12, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We are to lean on Jesus throughout the hardships. Have him strengthen us for every task. And with that, produce a harvest of righteousness and peace within us. And you see, this audience's weakness corresponds with their discouragement. They needed to recognize that discipline for their good should actually encourage them despite the circumstances they're going through. And the author here alludes to Isaiah 35.3, writing, Strengthen weak hands, steady the shaking knees. This was in reference to the coming kingdom for the people of Israel. They're awaiting the Messiah. And in Isaiah 35:10, joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. They will be overtaken by joy and gladness. Have you guys ever felt that? Or have you guys ever watched a video and you were overtaken with laughter? Like you're just crying, laughing so hard. You're like kind of wheezing. You guys ever felt that? I feel that with my brother-in-law Dakota often. And it's like a scene. We make a scene and we're overtaken. This is what the author's saying. Overtaken by joy and by gladness because of their present circumstances? No, they're going through it. But because they were looking forward to the coming Savior. Just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the people of Israel had joy set before them, leading them to endure. But presently, they need to strengthen the weak and discouraged with the promised kingdom come. And with us, strengthen our arms and knees for the race that we are running, doing so by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, the last section of our text today is on being holy. And it's congruent with the previous section as holiness is seeking the Lord, God who will enable us to run this race, God who disciplines us that we may be strengthened and who ultimately gives us life. Verse 14, we must make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
So notice, those who seek the Lord are at peace with others, or are at least trying to be at peace with others. They're making every effort to be at peace with everyone. And if we are not, that could be an issue. We must consider this, brothers and sisters. Am I truly seeking the Lord? Is my default mode toward others peaceful? This is something important to consider as we are all part of the family of God. We're all going to be together on this side of eternity and 10,000 years from now. We need to learn how to love each other. We need to learn how to be at peace with each other. And holiness, you see, it's the opposite of falling away, that which the author of Hebrews is constantly reminding his audience to not do. Do not fall away. Holiness, it's being set apart for God, whereas sinful tendencies are set apart from God. And you see, holiness should not just be understood in terms of sinlessness. I don't know about you guys, but I gave my life to Jesus and I still sin sometimes. Anybody else? You just like kind of keep sinning after you give your life to Jesus. You thought you'd be better, but it just kind of keeps on happening. Like, shoot. Yeah. Holiness describes those who continue to seek and pursue the Lord day after day. As Jesus declares in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. The pure in heart will see God, but not those who don't have holiness, not those who are not seeking the Lord. You see, for believers, sin creates like a type of fog. Like maybe you've had the experience of walking on the beach and it's super foggy that you can't see the waves. Doesn't mean the waves aren't there. It's just the fog is clouding your vision. And when we are living in intentional sin, our spiritual vision is fog. God is just as near as ever. He remains Emmanuel, God with us, but we are clouding our vision. It reminds me of a time that I went surfing with the student Carson Unger. The waves were pumping. It was a really good day. It was overhead with about 10 feet of visibility like could not see at all. We would see the wave like a moment before catching it. And it was really fun, really scary, but thinking about it, we might've missed out on better waves. There could have been better waves just 50 yards this way or 50 yards that, but we couldn't see a thing. We can only see so far in front of us. And just as the fog blocks vision and keeps us from experience, so does sin block our vision from God. Without holiness, the author writes, no one will see the Lord. We'll miss out on the glory of God as we settle for less. And that's what sin is. It's settling for less. As C.S. Lewis puts it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased when we settle for lives of sin and miss out on the glory of the almighty God as a result. And with that in mind, we must make every effort to be in peace with everyone and be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The author then notes, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. To which many of you may have considered, okay, I know Paul says we all fall short of the glory of God. Can I also fall short of the grace of God? 
But this is in regards to a return to the law, that which the author of Hebrews is warning the audience about. It means to diligently keep both ourselves and others from a return to legalism. We are not to return to trying to save ourselves. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God by abandoning the grace of God to save themselves. It doesn't work. And with that, see that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. You may have heard it said, bitter root causes bitter fruit, stubbornness, pride, arrogance, greed, all of which affects those around us. As Pastor Shea taught the other week, we have this faith that is supposed to be personal, but it's also communal. Our faith affects those around us, whether we consider it or not. So we must continue in the grace of God, being formed by it continually. And not just we ourselves, but we must see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Meaning we look out after our brothers and sisters. We keep them in check. We hold them accountable. We be bold enough. We love them enough to say, hey, I'm seeing this trend in your life. I'm seeing this pattern. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. For as iron sharpens iron, so does one person sharpen another. Continuing on in the text, Esau gets the worst shout out ever. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, for who a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought this blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, what's this guy's story? He lost the blessing. Not because God took it from him, but he traded it away. Esau, he gave up the promise, his inheritance, to ease his physical discomfort for a meal, for lentil stew. Lentil stew. He gets the shout out now. You see, the author brings this up as his listeners are considering giving up the promise, but to ease their social discomfort instead. Recognizing the audience, they've been given something precious and beautiful in the gospel. They must never forsake it, cast it away for the comforts or joys of this age. They mustn't walk away as they see many of their brothers and sisters doing. But it looks like Esau was remorseful, right? Like he felt really bad about it. Well, there's actually no indication that Esau recognized his responsibility nor the depth of his guilt. His only interest was to reclaim the blessing he had forfeited. Verse 17, even though he sought the blessing with tears, meaning he sought the blessing rather than repentance. Repentance being the means in which we obtain the blessing. So the author isn't saying God doesn't allow people to repent if they wish to. Rather, his point is that time had passed when Esau could repent, and Esau never did repent. So the author doesn't want the same misfortune to happen with us. So brothers and sisters, we must live lives of repentance, casting off the old and putting on the new, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, fixing our eyes on Jesus and running the race that has been set before us. Life is hard and it will continue to be hard. So endure this hardship as discipline. See what God may be doing through the trials because God doesn't waste the trials. 
God never wastes the trials as we see in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called to according to his purpose. He doesn't let things go to waste. So see what God may be doing through all things for his glory and in turn for our good. Brothers and sisters, run the race that has been set before you. Continue with Jesus, for in he alone there's life. Will you stand with me as we go into this time of response? So Jesus, as we consider the joy that was set before you, that led you to the cross, the salvation of those who would receive your grace, that which was given freely and could not be earned. Lord, may we be led into a posture of worship with joy, with thanksgiving, with gratefulness. Jesus, may we have our eyes fixed on you. I can't imagine a greater posture of worship than having our eyes fixed on you, giving you our full attention, and with that, giving you our full devotion. Jesus, you are king. You are worthy. We proclaim your lordship over our lives, and we desire to run the race fixed on you, obedient to you, and with that, experiencing the fullness of life. I pray over this time of response that we would respond with the cross in mind. We would experience your grace in a fresh new way, and we would give you the glory that you so rightly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.